Hello, listeners. This episode of Data Bytes will be a little bit different because we have a guest co-host with me today. Natalie, do you want to record our opening blurb with me? Sure. Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm not Jesse. My name is Natalie Doss. Natalie and I are still two statisticians in academia. Uh, Natalie, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm a fifth-year PhD student in the Department of Statistics and Data Science here at Yale, and I work on problems related to mixture model estimation as well as independent component analysis. Cool. So for this episode, Natalie and I want to talk a little bit about something in the news. It's not really new news, but it's been still around lingering in the news, and we just can't get this out of our heads these days. So if you follow Silicon Valley news at all, you'll have heard about the rise and fall of Theranos. This was the unicorn that was once hailed as a disruptor in the healthcare industry. They claimed that they had figured out a way to use a single drop of blood from a finger prick to run hundreds of tests for disease and other general health indicators like potassium levels or cholesterol and so on. Now, fast forward to many years later, the company was exposed as a complete sham, a classic case of overpromising, underdelivering, masked by layers and layers of cover-ups. If you're interested in the details, there's a good book called Bad Blood. It's written by John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal. He's the journalist who actually did the digging and exposed the truth about Theranos. And also, there's now an HBO documentary. It just came out on March 18th. And I think a movie is in the works as well. Yeah, I heard about this. Apparently, it's going to feature Jennifer Lawrence in the role of Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, that's the founder of Theranos. And of course, she's at the center of the scandal. Which I guess just goes to show, if you commit a big enough crime, you'll earn the privilege of having J-Law portray you in a movie someday. So that can be a good motivation. Yeah, really great incentive there. But we're not here to talk about the corporate side of how things went down. There's so much out there already on the web and in the news. So we'd like to talk specifically about the statistical sins that were committed in the cover-up process. So stay tuned after the break. So Susan and I both read Bad Blood. And in chapter 16, which is called The Grandson, Carrie Wu mentions a number of ways in which the company fudged the math to make its blood tests look better. And these were pretty egregious. I have to say, even though this is a nonfiction book, the way that it's written is just so gripping. And I feel like up until this point in the book, up until chapter 16, things are just getting worse and worse. The antagonists are getting away with everything, no matter how much of a fight the good guys are putting up. And of course, given that Theranos has just been plastered in the news of late, when I was listening to this audiobook, I was listening to Bad Blood on audiobook, um, I, I sort of heard about Tyler Schultz in the news. It's kind of hard to get away from the news, right? And he's his former employee at Theranos, who also is the grandson of the famous George Schultz, who is on the board of Theranos. So the news outlets gave me a rather big spoiler alert that Tyler is the primary whistleblower who helped to bring down uh, the bad practices and so on. So when you got to this chapter, you were like relieved that the introduction of Tyler is where like things would turn around. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like when you watch a movie about the bad guys ruining the world and then finally they introduce a superhero and you're just feeling a little bit more comforted because you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel. He's going to save the world. Nice. 
Well, unfortunately, it's not exactly how it ended up in this case. Although the work that Tyler and some others did to expose the company did eventually pay off, of course. Okay, so let's go through some of the things in this chapter and talk about the statistical issues that Tyler and his colleagues identified. So one thing that's mentioned is they fudged with coefficient of variation testing. Ah, that's actually not a generally familiar term, right? Like, I don't think I even talk about the coefficient of variation when teaching. So Natalie, would you like to define the coefficient of variation for our listeners? Sure. I mean, it sounds fancy, but it's not. It's the coefficient of variation, or CV for short. It's just the standard deviation divided by the mean. So it shows how variable a particular measure is. Say, for instance, vitamin D concentration in the blood in repeated testing. So imagine if you were to run the same vitamin D test five times on a single blood sample, and then you just compute the mean and the standard deviation of those five values, and then the CV, which is just the ratio of the two, will tell you whether those five measurements are really consistent or if they're kind of all over the place. So to summarize, a low CV would suggest the measurements are really similar, um, so your test is reliable, um, and a high CV would suggest the measurements are quite off. Yeah. So Tyler and his friend Erica Chung, who would later also turn whistleblower, um, they were in charge of checking variability in the test results of one of the Theranos blood testing machines, the Edison. So they were supposed to do exactly this sort of repeated testing. That is, they would run tests of a single sample of blood over and over for a fixed thing like vitamin D levels using a single Edison machine. And this is standard practice in the lab industry, which is good. And according to the book, usually the golden number to target for CV is 10%. So a CV of 10% or less is considered good enough. And I'm going to quote from the book here. So in the book, it says, data runs that didn't achieve low enough CV, so if they didn't achieve the 10%, um, were simply discarded and the experiments repeated until the desired number was reached. I especially love this next quote from, um, from the author, John Carreyrou, um, and he really just attempts to drive home the seriousness of this crime in layman's terms. He writes, it was as if you flipped a coin enough times to get 10 heads in a row and then declared that the coin always returned heads. Yeah, kudos to Carrie for finding such a clear analogy. Everyone can relate to coin tosses. But again, like I kind of wish we knew the extent of how bad this was. Like it's one thing to discard two experiments before you hit the one that makes you look good. And it's just a whole other level to discard eight or nine before you hit that really good outcome, right? Um, and this is not too different from all that p-hacking business that you hear about in academic journals where researchers ask so many questions that some of them are bound to trigger statistical significance just by chance. And well, then they just report on the questions that wound up having the statistically significant results. Yeah, it's just like that. So absurd. But also to help their chances even more, some senior scientists at Theranos would occasionally throw out data points that were deemed outliers. And when the senior scientists were asked about how outliers were determined, there was no consensus. So as someone who teaches introductory statistics where outliers certainly come up early on, uh, my students have certainly asked me this too. And I would say, honestly, likewise, I don't really give a straight answer. Yeah, I don't know of a rule that applies generally. But let me redeem myself so that I'm not just, um, you know, being like Theranos. Uh, there is no agreed upon definition for an outlier, right? And of course, the first time that students are exposed to them, 
um, are when they look at box plots. So most box plot implementations and statistical software will flag outliers that are more than 1.5, um, what we call IQRs, away from the first and third quartiles. So an IQR is simply the range of the middle 50% of the data. Now, in practice, we don't really apply these thresholds when it comes to identifying outliers in regression modeling, for example. So usually when we're, um, say, identifying outliers in regressions, we are just considering the standardized residuals, right? That's the, um, what happens when you look at how off your predictions are, and then you standardize them based on an assumed um, mean and standard deviation estimated from the data. And these standardized residuals would be assumed to have mean zero, standard deviation one. And we can then say, look at the sample size and consider just how many standard deviations a particular point might feasibly be. So just to put it more concretely, if you have just five points and one of them is three standard deviations away from, from the mean, that's a little bit unusual. But if you have a thousand data points and one of them is three standard deviations away, that's not so unusual. So you probably don't wind up flagging that one as an outlier. So effectively, the sample size matters. But I don't think we would ever just throw away one out of five observations in the name of being an outlier. Yeah, that's just not good. If we threw away enough outliers, well, you could get a CV of zero, right? Yeah, I mean, you can really get any result you want if you're willing to throw away enough data. <laughs> yep. But back to the point about outliers, though, while we can't generally supply our students with a golden rule for determining an outlier, since it varies from context to context, I do think that a company that heavily relies on testing should articulate and document how it determines outliers. Yeah, totally. Unless they have something to hide. That's true. <laughs> so there's another instance where they messed with CV calculations. Um, Tyler Schultz, this later whistleblower, told a more senior scientist that the CV calculations he was getting were different from the ones the company was reporting. And the C senior guy just told him well, his calculations were wrong. And if I understand correctly, here's what this senior scientist said was the quote, right, right way to do the calculation. He said the way they did those calculations was to do six tests on a single Edison, then take the median of those. Then they repeated this many times for that Edison. And then the coefficient of variation is calculated using those medians. Ah, so instead of taking CVs on the original raw test results, they were sort of taking the CV of the medians. Mm -hmm. That's not really good, right? Because we know that, for example, by the central limit theorem, that sample means are less variable than individual observations, right? If you crank up the sample size, um, you're going to just see a lot less variability. And medians similarly have the same quality. So they're really cheating here. They're actually taking drastic steps to cheat to have a better chance at getting uh, within the tolerable uh, variation bounds. Right. They totally cheated. Um, another sin mentioned in this chapter regards quality control checks. So this isn't just testing variability. It's testing on a sample of blood where the content of something is known in advance. So you want to make sure your machine that you're using estimates something quite close to the known value. And again, the book says this is standard practice in the industry, which is good. Just to be clear, when you say something that is known in advance, do you mean this is like a metric that doesn't vary much from person to person? 
I think so. This was a little unclear to me, actually. My understanding is that somehow this quantity has been measured on accurate machines on many, many samples. And it's kind of known that the mean value of the substance is X and the standard deviation is Y in the general population. And so the typical approach is to compare a lab's test for such a quantity um, and then see how unusual it is. If the result is more than two standard deviations away from that mean, the test fails. Now, assuming a normal distribution for such quantities, we would expect to be two standard deviations from the expected value only about 5% of the time. So uh, that's sort of where the two standard deviations probably comes from. Uh, okay, so how did Theranos do their quality control tests? Well, it sounds like rather than running a single lab test to compare to the known distribution of the quantity of interest, they took advantage of running multiple tests. Again, they basically would take one of the quality control samples, split it into three parts to test it on three different Edison machines. Each Edison machine would produce two values. They'd take the median of those six values and check it against the known value. So again, like with the CV fudging, this would understate the variability and give them a better chance of getting it right. Right, it's, yeah, exactly like the CV fudging. And that's not even the whole extent of it. Erica Chung, the later whistleblower, had done this protocol twice, failing both times. And then another more senior scientist came in and basically just repeated this, but threw away two of the values declaring them outliers, and then declared that the quality control check passed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I cringed upon reading this, just tossing away data willy-nilly just to make things look good. And they've seemed to do this again and again in different contexts. Yeah. Okay, so Natalie, we've run through a number of statistical sins that Theranos has committed. And throughout just listening to this whole audiobook, I keep wondering to myself whether this is a case of the leaders at Theranos being too bogged down with results to do their due diligence or if they are purposely choosing not to look at the issues within their system because they can't just fathom the ramifications of having to backtrack and fix things. In an early chapter, I think it was with the Walgreens consultant who came in to evaluate their technology, the consultant wanted to do external validation. So get a blood test using the Edison and get the same blood test from, say, a local test lab to compare the results. This isn't particularly a new or novel suggestion to me, right? It kind of just makes sense. But the poor guy was first ignored and then completely sidelined. It seems like Theranos itself should have at least done this sort of validation, even just internally, and not share it with outsiders. I mean, can you just imagine being a data scientist where you have to predict something and you just refuse to check the R squared or refuse to check classification accuracy and just tell people you're not even going to look into it? <laughs> oh, that'd be a pretty bad data scientist. <laughs> um, but I, I think somehow it, it goes deeper than this. I don't think they were just bogged down with results. To me, the whole problem is the leadership of that company seems to have had this mindset that if someone raised issues with the technology, they were just doubters who didn't believe in the vision. And I mean, the goal of the company was a good one. They, I think they genuinely wanted to improve healthcare. And Holmes, the CEO and founder, apparently thought that to reach this goal, it was best to just, you know, fake it if the technology didn't currently work, especially if that was necessary to raise funding. Um, I, I think they had incorrectly interpreted the Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things to mean move fast and don't worry if your technology doesn't actually work. <laughs> <laughs> and what they did is pretty crazy. I mean, despite their having this noble aim in mind, they were 
as we've talked about, they were outright lying with the data. Outright lying. Um, yeah, certainly. And I think you've brought up a number of good points, right? I think I kind of agree with you that ultimately they had a noble cause and they really thought that eventually they would actually get there. Because if they were truly malicious, they could have done an even better job of lying with the data, I think. Like, for example, um, let's see, what are some ways they could have lied to make the lying less detectable? One of the things mentioned in the book is that their potassium content tests were so inaccurate that a lot of people got results that were so high, you would have to be physically dead to have that level of potassium in your body. So if the company wanted to hide this fact, right, if they knew that they were this off and they wanted to hide this, well, what could they have done? They could have just figured out what the average potassium level is in a person of comparable age, weight, gender, and just add a little bit of noise, right? Apply the jitter command in R or something, right? And then with regards to those cancer tests, um, I feel so badly for those people who had the erroneous cancer tests and you know, they were cancer-free, but they were told that they actually had cancer, so on and so forth. Even with that scenario, cancer is thankfully still relatively rare. So there are a lot more people who don't have cancer than who do. So if... Theranos knew about the inaccuracy of their cancer tests and wanted to completely fly under the radar, what they could have done is just always report a diagnosis of no cancer, right? They could have done that. Well, Susan, you've really thought through some good strategies for lying with data. I'm impressed with this. Wow. How, how do I recover from this? I, I'm really not trying to tell people how to lie with statistics. I'm just saying that all of these things suggest to me that on the bright side, the corporate leaders were more negligent than being outright malicious, right? Um, I think they're still culpable for all the things that they've done. And they literally decided not to face the facts about the limitations of their test equipment when presented with them again and again from multiple employees. But we could have been way worse off. Had they been intentionally more deceptive, it could have taken many more years before they would have been exposed. Yeah, it's a really good point. And yeah, as you say, thankfully, they weren't more clever like you. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. But yeah, no, it's a really good point. And it is something in all of this, at least we can be grateful for that. It's sort of like they were so incompetent that it could be caught, you know, and they were caught. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for being our first guest here at Databytes. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise, this has been a great time. Thanks for listening to Databytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's Databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.